The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 31, 9 through 14. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration, my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I am forgotten, gone from memory like a dead person, like broken property. I have heard the gossip of many Terror is on my side. When they conspired against me, they plotted to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jenny. Well, this is fun, huh? If you showed up this morning and you're like, that is so weird. I missed the announcements about the outdoor service. You didn't miss the announcements. This was not planned by us. Um, There was an accident on Main Street earlier today, which took out power to half the building, and it happened to be the half the building that we normally meet in. And so we, by God's grace, met out here. And so when this happens, things like this happen, and over the years, things like this just seem to happen, um, it always reminds me of a few things. One is just how thankful I am for all of those who serve so faithfully. None of this was planned to be outdoors as of 7.30 this morning. Um, but many faithful servants ran and grabbed chairs and tents and set stuff up out here. And so it's just God's grace to us as a, as a church. The other thing is how we join the long list of churches throughout time who have had to meet in strange locations, right? Early Christianity met in places like catacombs and forests. I once talked with a pastor who was, uh, he was a pastor in uh, in the Czech Republic during um, Soviet, sort of the Soviet occupation, and he talked about how they would sometimes have to meet out in the forest so that no one would know where they would meet, just to be safe. So we don't exactly have that today, but maybe it reminds us a little bit of these brothers and sisters around the world and across time that had to meet in places they didn't expect. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 31. While you're doing that, I want you to consider a question. What do you do when you're distressed? Who do you call? I learned this from TV and movies. I don't know if it's true, but if you get arrested, you get one one phone call. Who's the lucky person that you call if that happens to you? Now, I know circumstances dictate who you call. So if there was something strange in your neighborhood, if there was something weird and it didn't look good, you wouldn't call your mom. You'd call the Ghostbusters. Right? But what about those normal, everyday, distressing moments? Who do you turn to for help? Who do you call for advice, encouragement, or comfort. Now, the historic Christian answer has been that we turn to God in prayer. We see it at the very center of our text this morning. Look at verse 9. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration, my whole being as well. This is the constant refrain of the book of Psalms. This morning, we begin our third summer of studying the Psalms. We ended last August with Psalm 30, so we pick it up here in Psalm 31. It's a psalm that's a prayer. Now, one of the blessings of returning to the psalms each summer is that we're reminded afresh of the importance of prayer. Like, prayer is something that every Christian knows they should do, 
and I believe every Christian struggles to do well. Prayer is simultaneously simple and complex. It's easy enough for a child, but a constant challenge for the most mature saint. Now, this particular psalm is a prayer that comes in a time of great distress. Now, we, we don't know the details about what's call, causing the psalmist distress, but in one sense, they don't really matter because what matters here is his example of turning to God in response to distress. So his example of praying when life is hard and circumstances are overwhelming is the most striking thing about this psalm. Christians pray when life is hard. Christians don't first call our mother or our spouse or our best friend. We turn to God, our Heavenly Father, in prayer. Now, here's what I hope to do this morning. If you're not a Christian, I hope to help you understand why Christians pray when life is distressing. So if you don't have a life-giving relationship with God through Jesus, then I think prayer will seem to you unnecessary and pointless and just a waste of time. Maybe it seems really odd to you that Christians talk to someone they can't see. So I hope this morning hearing why Christians pray will help you understand who God is and why you need a right relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Like you, you look for someone to help you when you're in need. We all do. And I want you to see that only Jesus can provide the help you need when those times come that are far beyond your strength or capacity. If you're a Christian, this is our second week in a row talking about prayer. Ian was here last week and talked about prayer. We're talking about his return to Psalms. And here's what I don't want is I don't want you to be discouraged because you struggle to pray. I want to encourage you to come to God even in your failure. I want to remind you why we pray because I think a better understanding of why we pray will help you grow in your dependence on Jesus. Like I I know a lot of Christians and I don't know a single Christian who thinks they have mastered prayer. In fact, most are a little discouraged when you talk to them about prayer, saying, I I wish I did it more. I wish I did it better. Like, we all need help. And so that's why we're coming together this morning, Psalm 31, to to get help. And so as we work through the psalm, I just want to offer six reflections on prayer. Okay? Here's the first one. Prayer is how we flee to God. Prayer is how we flee to God. So I had the privilege of being in Ireland last week, and one of the places we visited was called the Rock of Cashel. It's this famous hill where both kings and priests lived for centuries. Now, if, if you visit it, it's an astounding view, and you understand why it was chosen, because it's, it's up on this hill, it's the top of this hill, and you can really look each direction and see, like, for miles. And so it was a great place for them to build and locate, because they could see an invading enemy coming from a long ways away. So over time, like some of the buildings that are there were built over the past 900 years. And what happened is, as they built one and built another, they would start to connect them together. And then they built a wall around the base of it, and they just made this this strong defense against invasion. And so we were told on the tour there that when an enemy would invade, everyone in the surrounding area would flee to the Rock of Cashel, get inside those walls, and they would be defended there. Well, in the mid-1600s, Oliver Cromwell led a large, enemy, a large army from England to attack Ireland. When he came, more than 5,000 Irish people, they fled to the Rock of Cashel to, to find safety behind its walls. As strong as it was, it was unable to protect them. More than half of them were killed and their bodies were stacked inside the building they thought would protect them. Now, we don't have castles, but we all have the very same instincts. When life is hard, when we feel threatened, 
we look for something or someone to protect us. We seek refuge somewhere. So for the Irish 500 years ago, it was a, it was a castle that they sought to protect them from an invading army. Now, for centuries, people offered prayers to what they believed were the gods of the weather, right? So they offer prayer to the god of rain or the prayer to the god of sun in order to protect them, they thought, from drought or famine so they'd have enough food to survive. Today, people seek refuge in many places, including technology. Uh, Listen to this wise observation from Eugene Peterson. He wrote, Technology makes things happen and promises to eliminate poverty, pain, boredom. Now, when someone raises the point that there is more poverty, pain, and boredom today than our planet has ever known, the speech is interrupted within five minutes by the breathless announcement of some incredible technology. And we are so dazzled by the achievement that we are distracted from noticing the consequences. He wrote that in 1987, which was 10 years before Netflix started shipping DVDs, 17 years before Facebook, 20 years before the first iPhone. When life is hard, do you flee to technology for refuge? Mindless scrolling, binge-watching. Sometimes parents find refuge in their kids' activities. I mean, how else do you explain the thousands of dollars and miles and hours watching mediocre baseball or amateur dance? Where should Christians go when life is overwhelming? When, When we feel the need to escape from all of the hard things that are pressing in from every side. Well, look at verse 1. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. So the psalmist says he flees to God in these difficult times. But how does he do this? Well, this is a psalm of David. And for 10 years of his life, David was on the run from King Saul who was trying to kill him. And so often what he would do is he would literally flee him and those he cared for to the mountains to to look for a safe place, a a rock or a cave to hide and a rock to hide behind. So he borrows that time in his life, and he uses that imagery in prayer. So when he was running from Saul, he gave his time and his energy and his attention to finding a suitable place for defense. Here's what he's saying. When life threatens to overwhelm you, give your time and energy and attention to talking to God. Now let's make this practical. When you're overwhelmed and exhausted and maybe you want to escape into mindless scrolling, try reading the psalm instead. As you read it, personalize it as a conversation with God. It might sound something like this, Lord, I'm trying to seek refuge in you. Don't let me be overwhelmed. Listen to me and rescue me from my disappointment and despair. Right now, I want to find refuge in in lots of worthless things. I want to find refuge in turning on the TV Grabbing a glass of wine. Somebody told me after last service I need to add a bag of potato chips there. I want to flee to video games or bury myself in my work. I'm looking at my schedule and I'm hoping the next big event will rescue me. But Lord, save me from this. Free me from all these things that promise me freedom but only entrap me. 
See, we find refuge from the distresses of life by talking with God about we face, what we face. Now, now, how do we know that he'll listen? How do we know, why do we have any type of confidence that God will help us? And we see a couple reasons. First, because we're not seeking refuge in our own righteousness, but his. So we're not going to him and saying, look how good I've been. Look how special I am. The appeal in verse 1 is based upon your righteousness, based upon God's righteousness. So we seek refuge in what he does, not what we do. His kindness, his grace, his mercy, his protection, not our achievement. But the second reason is because Jesus first fled to God for refuge. And in doing so, he opened the way for us. And we have confidence that God will accept us because Jesus is at God's right hand where he guarantees our acceptance. See, on the cross, Jesus quoted this psalm, the first part of verse 5, Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. Because Jesus entrusted himself into God's hand, so can we. We can trust God with our lives both now and in the future. And prayer is the way we do that. So, so whenever the circumstances of life that, that press in on us, that overwhelm us, that, that just seem like they're more than we can handle, they tempt us to look for something to deliver us. So whether it's just for a moment or it's forever. So instead of looking to those things, we take it to God in prayer. So we set down the phones and the remotes. We set down the pens and pencils, the football and the drinks. We set down the keys and the credit cards and the bag of chips. And instead, we talk to God honestly about what it is we're feeling, what we're facing, what we're struggling with. Our second reflection on prayer comes from verses 6 through 8. Prayer is how we align our priorities with God's. Prayer is how we align our priorities with God's. So as we take our troubles and trials, as our, our disappointments and distresses, our shattered dreams and deferred hopes to God, something happens we begin to see the world in a different way. So we, we stop looking at the world around us and the circumstances in front of us from a purely human perspective. So in, in conversation with God, our eyes are open to reality, to seeing the world as it really is, not the way that we perceive it with our, with our sin-dimmed eyes. Like God changes how we see things. And my iPad just overheated, so I'm pulling out paper notes. See, prayer changes how we see. Prayer changes how we think. Prayer changes how we feel. And it reminds us of what really matters. It exposes the, the silliness of fleeing to other things and putting our trust in them. So look at with me at verse 6. Here's what he says. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you have seen my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul and have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. So out of his conversation with God, the psalmist renounces all forms of idolatry. Here's what he means. That he is refusing to seek blessing and prosperity and safety and protection and his future apart from faith in God and obedience to him. He understands that all other avenues are dead ends. So in verse 6, he refers to idols. Idols are those things that you trust in instead of God when you're in trouble. So what's the thing you trust in when you're in distress? That's an idol. 
And he says all of those things are empty or hollowed. So what he's doing is he's looking at the people around him. He's seeing these, this stone God that someone says, hey, if I worship this, then, then I'll be fertile. We'll have a child. I'll have safety in childbearing. Or this wooden God, they said, if I just worship this, then I'll have, I'll have a good harvest. And he says all of those things are like a chocolate Easter bunny, right? They're pretty on the outside, but they're hollow on the inside. He's asking, what good is a hollow God? What's going to accomplish worshiping an empty, hollow God? I wonder what the psalmist would say about pouring all your time, energy, and attention into a promotion at work. Just confident that if I get that promotion, then, and I get that bigger salary, then everything's going to work out. Or pouring all your time, energy, and attention into your child's college plans, because that, that will guarantee a successful future. Or pouring all your time, energy, and attention into that dating relationship because that will make you feel loved and wanted. Or pouring all your time, energy, and attention into remodeling the house, rebuilding that car, redecorating that room. Would he look at it and see how empty it is? Would he know that every bite we took of it would just leave us empty like eating air? See, as the psalmist prays, He begins to see the world as God sees it. His priorities change. He begins to find joy. Notice this. He begins to find joy even though his circumstances haven't changed. Like His circumstances haven't yet changed, but he says, I will rejoice. Because he knows before God changes his circumstances, God will change his heart. Our third reflection on prayer begins in verse 9. Prayer is where we can be completely honest. Prayer is where we can be completely honest. Now, it can be hard to know who we can trust with our most intimate secrets, who we can be completely real with. Prayer is where we learn to open up our hearts to the one who is, as we sang just a minute ago, strong and kind. But not only that, but think about this. He knows everything about you. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets already, and he still loves you. So we don't know what situation the psalmist faced as he prayed this prayer, but here's what I want you to listen to in these next verses. Just listen to how raw and unvarnished the honesty is in this prayer. Verse 9. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration, my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I'm ridiculed by all my adversaries, even by my neighbors. I'm dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I'm forgotten, gone from memory like a dead person, like broken pottery. I have heard the gossip of many. Terror is on every side. When they conspired against me, they plotted to take my life. Do you hear his brutal honesty? So he's honest about how he feels. He says, I'm in distress. I'm worn out. I'm consumed with grief, groaning. My strength has failed. I'm wasting away. He's honest about how others view him, that they're ridiculing him, not just his adversaries, but his neighbors. His, his own acquaintances dread him so much they run from him. They forget him. They gossip and conspire against him. And he's honest about the cause of this. This is due, at least in part, he says in verse 10, to his own sinful decisions. He hides nothing. He doesn't put on a brave face. He doesn't wear a mask. He is honest before God. I think sometimes we struggle to pray because we feel unworthy to pray. 
we think we need to clean up ourselves a bit to get some things worked out before we pray. We're embarrassed to go to God like we are. And so we, we, we try to fix things before we go. If I can just get these things fixed, if I can just do a little better here, if I can just do that, then I'll start praying more. So over the years, I've thought that a, a good gift for my wife would be to pay for one of those services to come in sometime and do like a deep cleaning of the house. See, Carrie loves a clean house, so she, she works hard to keep the house clean, and I thought maybe that'll give her a break. But then I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized I know what's going to happen, is I would, I would get a gift certificate, I would schedule a day, and the day before the cleaner showed up, Carrie would clean the house thoroughly. Because like, she wouldn't want them to have to deal with this mess, and so they would come in to clean the cleanest house they've ever had to clean, so I've never done it. Listen, you, you don't clean yourself up in order to come to God in prayer. You don't fix things so that you'll look good to him or at least be acceptable. You come openly and honestly. You come as a mess. You come broken and worn out and feeble. You come as you are, not as you hope to be. See, that's what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us we come to Jesus to be cleansed from our sin. We don't come to Jesus after we've cleansed ourselves. The gospel teaches us that we can't fix our lives, but God can, so we don't try to make ourselves right before coming. We come honest about our struggles and failures, and we ask God for his grace to help us in our times of need. Here's the fourth reflection. Prayer is how we trust in God's power. Prayer is how we trust in God's power. So after he's recounted how fearful and broken he is, the psalmist asks God for help, and he declares his faith in God. Look at verse 14. He says, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. Prayer is active trust in God's power. It's the way we trust him. Prayer is like a trip to the bank. Every time we pray, we are, we are taking money out of the account labeled self-confidence and we're depositing it in the account labeled confidence in God. See, self-confident people don't pray. Why would they? Like, they can do it. Right? They can do it themselves. Prayer is the means by which we, we remove any confidence we have in our own ability, or our own cunning, or our own strength, or our own effort, our own ability to figure it out, and we place that confidence in God's goodness and grace. I grew up watching the TV show Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Right? He plays this character called Tim the Toolman Taylor. And, and basically, the, the whole show, I think, is about things going wrong in the house and Tim saying, I'll fix it. Not only will I fix it, but I'll add more power. And he'd grunt a few times. And every time he'd say that, his wife would, would convince him not to try to fix it, but instead to call someone, to call a repairman. And every time he'd say, no, I can do it. And it's a comedy, so you know what happened. Every time he'd mess it up. But he, he, he was confident that he could... He could handle it, and he didn't need to call someone who had greater knowledge or skill. See, brothers and sisters, many of us are like Tim the Toolman Taylor. We think we can fix it. So instead of calling on God for help, instead of turning to him for wisdom and direction, we, we think about it, and we're like, I, I'm going to figure this out. I've got to figure out a way to fix this thing. I can handle it. And we lay in bed, and we don't sleep, and we, we worry, and we grow anxious because we can't trust God with it. We've got to do it. I want you to listen to these next verses, and I want you to notice how the psalmist, he, he pulls that confidence out of himself and he places it in God. He deposits it in God. Verse 15, the course of my life is in your power. 
Let's stop there just for a second. This is graduation Sunday. We celebrate our graduates. If you heard a graduation speech this week, it probably said the opposite of that, right? Most graduation speeches are like, you can do it. Anything you set your mind to, you can do. And somebody should say that that person is lying to you. You can't necessarily do everything you put your mind to. That's just not reality. The course of your life is not in your hands. The course of your life is in God's hands. He continues, rescue me from the power of my enemies, from my persecutors. Make your face shine in your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Lord, do not let me be disgraced when I call on you. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them be quiet in Sheol. Let lying lips that arrogantly speak against the righteous and proud contempt be silenced. The course of your life is in his hands. He has the power to silence those who speak against you, to keep you from disgrace. What you need more than anything else is for God's face to shine upon you, for him to look on you in love and kindness. So how do you think that will happen? How can you force God to do these things right here? What can you do to manipulate him so he has to do this? Well, nothing. Here's what you can do. You can ask. And Jesus teaches us you can ask in boldness because our Father is good and he loves to give good gifts to his children. All we've got to do is ask. Our fifth reflection on prayer comes from verses 19 through 22. Prayer is where we remember God's faithfulness. Prayer is where we remember God's faithfulness. So my, my parents celebrated their 50th anniversary on Friday. So on Thursday night, we took them out for dinner and we were talking. And it was funny, as we were talking about the, the rehearsal dinner, which had happened 50 years, you know, 50 years ago that night, they could remember so little about it. Like we were, we were discussing it. They remembered it was at the church, but they didn't remember what they ate. They assumed it was some sort of casserole or something like that. As we talked about it, they really, like even the wedding itself, their, their memories have faded. They've forgotten so much about what took place. You know, we all have bad memories. What did you do 10 years ago today? What did you do 10 days ago? What did you do yesterday? Now, some of you ran the quay, so you probably are feeling that. You'll remember that. Right? But it's hard for us to remember, and it's hard for us to remember all the ways that God has been faithful to us. But something happens when we pray. The more we pray, the more we remember God's faithfulness in the past as we read about his faithfulness to Abraham and David and Mary and Paul. But beyond that, something else happens. We remember the times he was faithful to us. I mean, anyone who has prayed and knows the Lord, I think, can testify to this. As you pray, God brings to mind his past faithfulness to you. And we certainly see this in this prayer. Look at verse 19. He says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. In the presence of everyone, you have acted for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. So he's sort of thinking generally about how God has been faithful to his people in the past. Now look what he says in verse 21. He personalized it. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to for your help. So as he prays, he remembers that he has prayed in the past. And in the past, God answered him. That God has moved in response to his prayer. This isn't the first time he's been in distress. This isn't the first time he's been overwhelmed. This isn't the first time he's taken his fears to God in prayer. And so in praying, he remembers what God did in the past, that God demonstrated his faithful love. Even though in the past there was a time when he felt God wasn't listening, God did answer his prayer. He responded to his plea for help. So going through difficulty without prayer is like trying to fly a plane without instruments. 
At times the clouds will roll in and you won't see where you're going. Without instruments, you're in serious trouble. But those instruments allow you to keep going in confidence when all around you it's dark. Prayer helps us navigate the storms because it guides us with something that is not hindered by our own limitations. It's not dependent upon our own perception. Prayer aligns us with the horizon of God's faithfulness in the past. And we hold on to that heading until we finally emerge from the clouds to see the sun again. Let me ask you this morning, are you struggling to trust God's goodness? Maybe you're in the clouds right now and you can't see your way out. Prayer can tether you to the goodness of God. It can remind you of his never failing faithfulness in the past. This is why in the midst of difficulty, when trouble is all around, here's what the psalmist says in verse 19. He says, God is storing up his goodness for his people. How can he say that? He's in distress. In fact, he's said earlier, I feel like people are trying to kill me. Like all I can see are enemies all around me. People are gossiping about me. They want to harm me. And yet he says, God is storing up his goodness for his people. You see, you need prayer most when prayer is hardest. When you can't feel God's goodness, when you can't see it because of the clouds, that's when you need it most. Let me encourage you, pray. Honestly talk with God. And the memories of his past goodness will illuminate the way forward. Here's our final reflection on prayer. Prayer is where we find strength to encourage others. Prayer is where we find strength to encourage others. So here's the thing about prayer. Prayer to the Christian is like spinach to Popeye. It gives us strength. And we use that strength to help others. And we see this reflected in the final two verses of the psalm. All this time the Lord has empowered the psalmist to encourage others to trust God. Look at verse 23. Love the Lord, all his faithful ones. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. Be strong and let your heart be courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. So he's been reminded of God's faithfulness, and he's realigned his priorities to God's. And so he looks around at those around them, and he invites them to come and join him, finding strength and courage in God. <coughs> he calls them to humble confidence in God's care. Of course he does. I bet if you've met someone you know prays, maybe you call them a prayer warrior, you know that they don't just pray for themselves. They don't just pray for their needs. They're the person you know will pray for you and pray for your needs. And they pray for other people, excuse me, and intercede on behalf of them. (coughs) See, this is what happens. When we look up in prayer, God always directs our eyes out to others. Now, this final verse corrects our misunderstanding of strength. So as humans, here's our tendency. We think our strength is measured by what we can accomplish, right? So the really strong person is what is measured, that's measured by what they can accomplish. So physically, right, the, the weight that I can lift shows my strength. Look what I can accomplish. In our careers, in our families, in this, look what we've accomplished. This measures our strength. But that's not where strength and courage are found. Strength comes from admitting and embracing our weakness. For only when we embrace our weakness will we look somewhere else for strength. See, we become strong not by being strong, but by turning to God for strength in our weakness. Your biggest spiritual problem 
And the reason you struggle to pray is not because you are weak. It's because you don't understand how weak you are. So I remember years ago reading this quote from John Piper that unfortunately describes me and my prayer life all too well. Here's what he wrote. He said, a prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying alone to push his bus out of a rut because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on board. See, strength to help others doesn't come from within. It comes from without. Prayer is looking outside of us for strength. And when we do that, and when we find strength in Jesus, then we will encourage others not to come to us, but to come to Jesus for strength and encouragement. So a number of years ago, one pastor said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. So let me challenge you this week to think about where you go when you're overwhelmed. So when life gets really busy, when you're tired, overwhelmed, where do you go? Is it Facebook or Instagram? Is it Netflix or ESPN? Is it your office? Kids baseball game? Is it the pool? Is it a bag of chips? Where do you look to escape? Now, once you answer that, I want to encourage you this morning just to make a small change, okay? So if you say, Manny, I do, I go to social media. So next time you do that, set a timer. Set a timer for 10 minutes. And when the timer goes off, turn the app off and say, okay, now I'm going to pray. I saw a lot of people's faces. I saw a lot of names. Lord, I'm going to pray for some of them. Or maybe it's like, yeah, my kids are in all these events and that's that's sort of my happy place. It's where I go to escape from the business. Drop them off and before you go join them, take five minutes and pray for them and pray for their friends and pray for the people you're going to meet there. Small changes. Let's start with small changes. Let's this week intentionally invite God into our lives, into our activities. Let's begin conversations with him in the morning and continue them all day long. Let's grow so accustomed to talking with God that we can't stop talking with him. That prayerlessness would feel like amputation, like part of us is missing. Here's one final challenge, and then we're done. Before you leave here this morning, ask someone to check on you this week, okay? Before we pack all this up and we leave for the blessedness of air conditioning, okay? Ask someone to check on you this week. Ask them to send you a text, a phone call, email, to, to meet with you for coffee and, and ask you one question. Are you praying this week? That's it. Just say, will you ask me this week? Will you check on me? Just say, are you praying this week? Not, not to guilt you into doing it, but just encouragement. Here's the reality. Every single one of us struggle to pray. We're all weak. And so often we let our shame and our failure keep us from praying. So let's encourage each other this week. Let's pray. Will you join me in praying? Father, we need your grace. We understand enough about prayer to understand that you not only invite us to pray, you tell us that you love to hear us pray and you will answer us. And yet we still struggle so much. And so, God, in your grace, will you help us to pray? Help us to commune with you through prayer. May we set aside all the things that distract us, all the things that we're looking to for life or meaning or validation or security, and run to you in prayer. Lord, help us. You have put us in a family of those who are struggling with us, and may we, in our struggles, encourage each other to find strength 
in you. So may we this week, Lord, faithfully pray ourselves and encourage our brothers and sisters to greater prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.